Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of the Coin Press Podcast. I'm Luke Willis. Today, I am joined by Lars Doucette. Am I saying that right? It's Doucet. It's French. But All right. Well, that's how every American pronounces it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, so yeah, so Lars here is the author of a new book called Land is a Big Deal. So um, yep, you got it right there. I've ordered the book, but I haven't received it from the publisher yet. I've gone through your uh, your articles on the game of rent um, to some extent, but I know there's a bunch I've, I've missed. Um, so I'm really excited to, to talk about this and then dig into the book when it does finally show up. Uh, so yeah, so this is land. Land is a big deal. What does that mean? I know this kind of comes around to the concept of Georgism and land value tax from a guy way back in the 1800s. Uh, what what is this? What is what are we talking about? Yeah, so let's 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 break it all down. So before we get into the weeds of any isms or whatever, basically the thesis of the book is just that land is a big deal, and um, I it's a double entendre. It has two meanings. One like land is a very important matter. But then mm -hmm. land is also like, like it's a good deal, you know, yeah. in that sense. Like it's a big deal. There's a lot of value that's locked up in land. And basically um, the thesis of the book is if you read any economics textbook, they will tell you this little interesting little mysterious phrase that the three factors of production are land, labor, and capital, right? And that mm -hmm. means those are the three things that are basically necessary for economic activity to happen, to like do anything, humans combine land, labor, and capital to do everything that we do, goods and services, everything, sure. right? And yet, when we talk about policy, labor and capital is all you ever hear about. Right. In fact, we have two big teams that have been fighting for over a century, and yeah. it's team labor, which is uh -huh. generally associated with like the more socialist ideas, right? right? And then there's team capital, which is associated with more capitalist ideas, right? Yeah. And they've been fighting about which one's right and which one is the best system, you know? And, um, you know, and the more free marketeers, kind of like Milton Friedman and so on, like kind of, and, you know, represent team capital, you know, your hardline leftists like Marx represent team labor and then people sometimes in the middle like Keynes and whatever kind of represent you know team like reasonable enlightened centrist compromise but then there was this guy in the 19th century called henry george and latter part of the 19th century like he died right before the turn of the century like in 1897 i think so like it wasn't it was all after the civil war right yeah. so um henry george was very much team land and the reason land is a big deal is that um it's the world's largest asset class hmm. you know and what do we mean by that i mean that 60 what is it 65 68 percent of if you unroll all the paper assets in the world of like everyone's net worth and unroll it down to pointing at atoms mm -hmm. 68 percent of those atoms are real estate right so and then if you look at bank loans, it's like two thirds of bank loans are just bidding up the price of real estate. And then if you look at what's driving the price of real estate, well, the real estate agents tell you location, 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 right. um, go buy land. It's the one thing they're not making any more of. And so um, when you think about it, like land is this huge part of the economy. We don't talk about it. Our policies don't really go into it and don't really account for it the way they should. And because of that, we have this entire engine of rent seeking that is this huge drag on our entire economy. And it's mm -hmm. manifesting in particular now, and we can go into why it's manifesting now, as the housing crisis, 
which a lot of people have said is the everything crisis. It's the reason for not only just like various kinds of inflation, but like people need to live in the city and they need to pay rent and you need to pay rent. So if you need to hire someone, you need to hire someone who's able to pay rent, which means you need to pay them more. So all the costs just go up. And then who are the costs going to? They're going to the landlords, right? And what are the landlords providing? If they're providing a building, that's one thing. If they're providing maintenance and services, that's one thing. But if they're mm. just providing access to land, they're gatekeeping, they're really not providing anything because no one can make the land. Right. And so that's the basic argument of the book. And it goes deep into the weeds of how much all the value in America is worth. You know, the whole point about lands and being like how banks are just bidding up the price of real estate, all that stuff with like lots of research and empirics and numbers and metrics to just like prove the thesis land is a big deal. And then the second part is, okay, it's a big deal. What do we do about it? Right. And then we go into policy recommendations. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. Um, and for everybody listening, who's maybe a little bit confused because we're jumping straight into land and government and taxation. Uh, this is, this applies very directly to like the crypto space and, and video games and all that. So we'll get there, but we got to lay the groundwork first. Yeah. And as a, as a background real quick of how, you know, Luke and I cross past, uh, I am actually a professional game designer. And for the last year I've been writing extensively on crypto games. And yeah. um, so I'm, I'm very familiar with this space and it even has its own virtual housing crisis we'll get into later in the episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Okay. So land, kind of this third leg of the stool. We've got capital, labor, and land. Um, it's interesting that, you know, there isn't like a major land party, <laughs> at least that I'm aware of, right? Um, so how, what are, I mean, we don't have to go fully into the, the weeds. Obviously, you know, you should go buy the book and, and read uh, read up on the details here. But what is the the concept here? Like, how does this differ from, say, property taxes? And why is this really like a third team and not just like a, a mode of taxation? Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. So the, the thing you've kind of packed in there is that the policy prescription is what's called the land value tax, mm -hmm. that this is what we do about land being a big deal is. And, and the idea there is, um, but before I get into what the land value tax is and how it's different from a property tax, let me back up for a second and talk about, isn't land just a kind of capital, right? Sure. What is the difference? It's like, it's something you own, you use it to get more money. Like, why is it special? Why should we treat it as differently? Right. And so this is the heart of the book. And it's why in contemporary economics, everyone just keeps talking about labor and capital. When they talk about capital, they're talking about capital, which means um, basically wealth you use to get more wealth, mm -hmm. which is things like factories, which is things like tools, you know, it's often used in the sense of like money, but ultimately that money points to stuff, which is productive capacity, right? Sure. And so mm -hmm. the whole socialist argument is that um, the capitalists, because they own the quote unquote means of production, they're able to basically extort everyone else is what the socialist argument and the capitalist argument is that it's like well the capital is what's responsible for us not digging sticks in the mud and not living in poverty so we need we, we need to unleash capital right? right and george says you have combined two things under the word capital that are not the same at all mm. and um so land is definitely used to get wealth from more people um, it's used to extract value out of people. And, and so George's argument is that land is the extractive half of capital. Okay. Is that that's the thing the socialist should actually be concerned about. And that um, capital buying in and of itself is not actually that big of a problem. So hmm. for instance, let me, let, me, let me give you a real good example. So there's this guy called Thomas Piketty who wrote this great book 
um, called Capital in the 21st Century. And he has this very scary conclusion, which okay. is that the returns to capital are growing faster than the growth of the economy. So the economy is growing by, I don't know, X percent a year, but the capital is picking up X plus two or whatever. Yeah. Of, yeah. So eventually capital will just own everything. Right. And right. that's very bad. But the problem is, um, and this guy called Matthew Romley, um pointed out that the problem with that argument is not that it's wrong, but that the category of capital includes real estate. Mm -hmm. And when you separate out real estate, you see that all of the increasing gains are to real estate. And the mm -hmm. returns to capital, when you account for um, depreciation, are flat. Like capital degrades. Like yeah. how valuable is the source code to Windows 95 today? <laughs> like right, right. not yeah, that yeah. valuable. You know, and 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 other things like that. So, um, and houses fall down, right? right? But land tends to go up in value because of its unique properties. And really, the problem that Piketty uncovered is really, you know, that that land is the extractive asset. And we can talk about why that is. So, how is land different than capital? Mm -hmm. We can make more capital. We can build more factories. We can right. build more tools. We can build more of that part of productive capacity. But the problem is, go back to this notion of the three factors of production. Mm -hmm. um, you, if you want to do something, you need labor, but you also right. need a place to do the labor and you need natural resources to work on, right? And right. so when we say land, we mean economic land, which includes both locations as well mm -hmm. as natural resources, things that come from the earth that nobody created, right? Yeah. And so you obviously must have that to work and you obviously must have labor. Capital becomes kind of optional. It's like you kind of do need it if you want to like work on a non-Stone Age level. So it like multiplies sure. the value sure. of your work. Um, but it's really clear that like land is this really, really like gatekeepery asset here because um, basically it's like, like, why is it that if I'm a really talented programmer in India, I can only charge so much of a salary and like, like I can afford to like charge a much lower salary. But if I'm in San Francisco, like I need to make six figures or I'm below the poverty line. Right. right. Yeah. It's because the worker in San Francisco needs to pay his landlord because mm -hmm. it's really valuable to be in San Francisco around all of those people, around all those connections. And basically that value gets soaked into the land all of the value that has been created by that industry and those human connections and all the people that are there basically manifests in demand for the land. And because you can't make more land and um, then the people who own the land are able to extract this price. So I developed this theory originally for explaining virtual housing crises in video games. Sure. Um, and I'm sure I it's not unique at all. It's just probably, you know, but I, it's just my way of phrasing things is that there's an economic class called a land-like asset, which is an mm -hmm. asset that behaves the way land does in the real world. And it has three properties. It's scarce. You can't make more of it. It's necessary for production and it obtains value from its location, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have those three, you have the perfect speculative asset, right? You can't make more of it so no one can undermine you by just cranking out a bunch of extra earths from the land factory, right? right. So like, secondly, um, it's necessary for production. So people can't opt out of needing it. And the way I like to say this is that you can't eat, sleep, work, or even poop without access to a location. You must right. be in a place to do those. And it really matters where you do those things. You do mm. those things in the wrong place 
or in places you're not authorized to do so, and very terrible things can happen to you, right? Especially yeah. pooping in the wrong location. <laughs> but like, yeah. but, but like even sleeping, right? If yeah. you want to, you, you know, um, if you sleep on a park bench, you could get arrested. Work, like that's the whole immigration argument, you know. But even within a country, you know, like generally speaking, the way we allocate places you can like live in order to have access to a job is how much you're willing to pay a landlord. Right. And the amount that the landlords charge is very proportional to how much you can make in that area or whether it's close to a good school or anything else you might desire, you have mm -hmm. to pay almost exactly the increased value that it has. And so therefore, um, and then we get to the last value, which is obtains value from its location. And this is what makes land a really, really extractive asset because it means you don't necessarily need to do anything with your asset because you can make value you can obtain value based off the contribution of your neighbors so like if mm. i am running a hot dog stand where do i want to put my hot dog stand if i have any choice in the world do i want to put it in the middle of the nevada desert or do <laughs> i want to put it next to times square right. obviously next to times square so I could give like the best hot dog pitch, have the best hot dogs, like have the best capital, like the most technologically amazing, just customer service hot dog scan ever with like the best ingredients and spices right. and ketchups. And it doesn't matter if I'm in the Nevada desert because right. there will be no customers there to buy it. But if I'm in Manhattan, all this street traffic comes by and then the value of both my labor as an excellent hot dog salesman and my capital of amazing gourmet super hot dogs, you know, I'm gonna sell them like hotcakes. But also yeah. if I'm a crappy salesman and I have crappy hot dogs, I'm gonna sell a lot more hot dogs anyway just because of all the foot traffic. Now, where did right. that traffic come from? It came from Manhattan. It came from the people in the city of New York's, all of their investment. And just because I'm at this location, I'm able to get that. So it's really helpful if I bought land 50 years ago in Manhattan. And right. you know, and so that's um, where the locational aspect comes in because sometimes people are like, land isn't scarce, what are you talking about? Earth is full of land. There's also right. land in the Nevada right. desert. And so what we're talking about is like, it's not just that land can't be made, is that land isn't fungible. Land right. Locations are not substitutable and be, and they obtain locational benefits. And you can't, um, unless you're in a video game, you can't like create, you can't instance it either. You can't make it so it's like, oh, Times Square is over capacity, better, better fire up a parallel pocket dimension Times Square and let everybody party <laughs> yeah. in there. You know, it's like, nope, you can't do that. It's scarce. Mm -hmm. Right. And so okay. that's so that's the heart of that idea. Very cool. So, okay, so th that all makes good sense. Obviously, you know, land isn't fungible. I think anybody coming from the crypto space understands that in inherently. Um, so great, now it's it's not fungible. And so we've we've come to this point where, you know, we we have these assets, that is land, um, and we need to treat them differently. <laughs> so, so how do we do that? Um, now, now let's get into that land value tax piece of this right, and, right. and um, explore that. How, how is it different from property tax? Right. So a property tax basically taxes you on the total value of a piece of real estate. And so real estate is two things. Mm -hmm. It is the land and it is the improvement. And the improvement is just whatever's on the land. This sure. could be a building. But in an agricultural sense, it could be the sense that I plowed this field or I irrigated it or I yeah. planted an orchard on it. It's something that's very clearly, obviously, like the result of like not natural to just the bare locational value. Sure. Um, but 99% of the time, it means a building. Um, and so real estate charges you for the full value of the thing, charges you some X percent. And the problem with this is that it's, 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 what it, it's how it affects your incentives in the future, 
right? So if I'm Mr. Hot Dog Stand Man in Manhattan, or, or more realistically, the owner of a parking lot, a surface parking lot downtown, which we see a yeah. lot of in America, right? Next to a really useful building, like let's just say the Empire State Building, as an example, I've got a surface parking lot downtown in New York. That's a very wasteful use of that land because sure. there's so much demand for land. Like you could build, I don't know how many homes on it, right? Right, right. And it's right next to the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building pays a lot more taxes than I do because it pays off of the value of the land, which is huge, and mm -hmm. the value of the building. And so if you have somewhere else where someone's like, okay, well, I want to build more, like I want to build more, what's that going to do to my tax obligation? Well, it's going to increase it because right. I increased my improvement. I'm going to increase my tax obligation. Mm. Whereas the person who's like, I'm going to hold that out of use and not do anything, or if I've got a property there, I'm going to let it decay. Sure they get a tax break because the value of their improvement went down. So right. we're actually encouraging people not to build. We're rewarding them to not build. And basically the people who are building are subsidizing the people who are not building. It's like the exact opposite incentive structure that you want. Now yeah. we are taxing the land implicitly, but we're also taxing the building. The portion that taxes the land is good. The portion that taxes the building is bad. And so it's kind of, it's kind of uh, less efficient than we could do. And so the land value tax idea, this comes from Henry George, is don't tax buildings at all. Mm -hmm. only tax land and then further his policy is like and land value tax is actually the perfect tax so i would prefer that you raise the land value tax as close as you can to capture its full rental value we'll get into what that means in a sec sure. and then use that extra revenue to just get rid of all other taxes like mm -hmm. in his time there wasn't income taxes there was mostly just tariffs was how the federal government ran things but like tariffs fees fines sales taxes like 100% orthodox maximal Georgism is like what's called the single tax, sure. which is um, only land value tax and get rid of everything else because everything else is a drag on the economy. If you want less of something, tax it, but you can't get less land right. because you can't make it. So it's the perfect tax. Milton Friedman agreed with this too, um, even though he was more on the conservative side. So did William F. Buckley. And then also a bunch of... Um, even Friedrich Hayek basically admitted it would be a good idea. He had some technical disputes with it, but we'll get into that later. Sure. Um, but basically, that's what the land value tax idea is. And then the question is, like, how can you achieve that? Is it practical? Um, and um, Vitalik Buterin has written extensively on, like, applying these same ideas to things like uh, the Ethereum name service mm -hmm. and other things where he identifies what he thinks are land-like assets in the digital world, which, is, which right. was pretty interesting to me. Yeah, that, that is a very interesting space because I, I agree that something like uh, domain space is very much like an address because I mean, we see this with not even looking at ENS, but, you know, dot com domains, if you have a four letter domain, um, that is a super premium asset that people will pay you a million, a couple million dollars for to start their business around. Um, so having that you know, there there are there's only so many four letter domains. You mm -hmm. can't make more because it's constrained by uh, the nature of words, right? And so, right. yeah, it, it's a really interesting analogy that I think carries over pretty well. Yeah, we, we had this whole debate with Vitalik where we're trying to figure out. It's like, okay, it it really feels like a land like asset, but like we shouldn't run away with the metaphor until we've investigated it, and like because mm -hmm. it probably operates like kind of in a mutant weird way. Because sure. we can make more extensions, you know, but within ENS, like we're we're not doing anything but .eth, so it does seem fixed. And so, like, we figured out that like, what does location mean 
in domains? Yeah. Like, is it like typo squatting or whatever? Like, does that aspect exist? Is it a weak land-like asset that's only 70% land-like? And what we mm -hmm. figured out is that the locational aspect functions more like it's proximity to ideas in the real world. So it's yeah. like non-Euclidean space. So like a good example is Vitalik's own domain name, right? Right. I, it, it's like that's more valuable because it's adjacent to this real world value he's created himself. Right. Before it was just some name of some guy that nobody cared about, presumably. Right. And right. I give the example, like, say there's a K-pop band that's just a random string of letters. Call them mm -hmm. K45X3, you know, K45X3, aside from being short, like imagine that's 18 letters long. You know, that means nothing today. But if a K-pop band comes out tomorrow and gets a billion views on YouTube, K45X3.eth yeah. is going to go up right. in value because it's adjacent to that real world idea. Right, right. And yeah. and and so someone can squat that and basically gatekeep access to it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it's, it's proximity to where you exist in space, right? So right. Times Square, obviously a ton of people right there. Um, but if we're talking about your brain space and the words that you think about that's a very different type of mental model right and it's uh, like people have tried to apply this to copyright and patents which is I, I think there's something there but it's challenging and i don't want to be glib and fire off an uninformed opinion before i fully worked it out sure. but like there's these notions of like non-euclidean adjacencies which comes up yeah. a lot in virtual real estate especially when you have teleportation and instancing and other things that are really really intriguing and interesting to get to dig into yeah okay very cool um Okay, so there's a number of objections that you raise, and actually, I really like the uh, the the concept here. I think that it's a really clear uh, clear way, and, and obviously, it's easier to to reason about when we're talking about true land. Mm -hmm. um, but it makes a lot of sense, right? For people who are building and improving the land, um, they're not punished for that. And then for people who are squatting, they effectively are punished because they should be using it, and it's a waste of that all that tax money that they're spending to just let it sit fallow but the, you know they could develop it to the maximum amount and come out way ahead so it encourages utilizing the land and not just letting it sit so right makes good sense um okay so you go over some key objections in the book uh and the first one is that land isn't an important part of the economy um i, I mean i think we've kind of already addressed this but do you have any additional thoughts on like Right. Well, I just want to go into just like, I think the most important part is just addressing like the general vibe. Mm -hmm. You come across, you, you go, you show up to someone and you just tell them that like land is the most important thing in the economy and you sound kind of insane, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, here we are teleconferencing, you know, sure. in a world with crypto and video games and the metaverse and like everything's virtual. Like, doesn't it seem like land matters less than it ever did? Sure. And so part of that's true. Agricultural land matters a lot less now than it used to. Farmland mm -hmm. matters much less. Thomas Piketty, one of, you know, I, I don't mean, mean to slag him off in my earlier comment because he did this just really great research that shows all this great data. He has graphs in his book that show that like agricultural land used to be like the primary source of like real asset wealth. And yeah. now it's gone to almost nothing. But what's taken its place is residential wealth. Sure. You know, prime yeah, yeah. real estate in cities has almost completely made up for the decline in agricultural wealth. So mm -hmm. the old plantation owner used to be the richest, like the, the king owns all the land in England or whatever. You know, the lord, the baron, the plantation owner used to be the big cheese. Now it's the guy who just owns all the prime real estate downtown, right. you know, is the one who's 
really got just the whip hand on the economy. And um, and so that's the sense in which real, and then the, just the proof for that is you just go out and you just do the math and you just see real estate is the world's biggest asset class in terms of real assets. And then also it's the major part of bank loans. What I try to do is like break it down into testable hypotheses and I can just bring them up real quick here, is it's like, just go out, make a couple hypotheses of what land being a really big deal could mean and see if they're true. And they are, you know, most of urban real estate's value is land. So it's not mm -hmm. like it's just the buildings that are valuable. It's the land, it's the location. You know, it's like 70% of the value of any particular building in a huge coastal city will be, will be the land. Um, then also, um, you know, the bank loans, real assets you know it's concentrated among the wealthy i've um i you know you people have heard that like bill gates is the number one owner of private farmland but that's just farmland overall right. he's number 49 in mm -hmm. terms of owner of all land in america gates is about 50th but jeff bezos is 25 okay. and ted turner is number four so <laughs> like a lot of these people who you think of as just like owning a bunch of stock wealth actually own a lot of land wealth too and most importantly the big criticism of the whole land tax idea is that it's just not going to raise enough money, you sure. know, so we can't offset income tax or sales tax. And so one of the big kind of the heart of the book is me going out and doing the math of every estimation model of America's land rents and comparing it to our budgets. And the basic upshot is that when you do all of that and you come out to the final, I'm okay. Where is it? Just, um, budgets yes yes so basically if we were to tax land at its full rental value um there's enough land value in the united states basically for a land tax to completely replace and the most pessimistic estimate by the way any one of our three non-discretionary funding things and by that i mean defense social security or healthcare, which is medicare and medicaid put together those sure. three things are things we have to spend money on every year and they're like the three like biggest third rails in american politics yeah and land tax could pay for any one of those three alone at the lowest estimate and at mm -hmm. the highest estimate it can pay for all three with money left over for extra stuff gotcha. and um so just anywhere between 1.1 and 3.36 trillion dollars basically a year yeah. every year <laughs> forever and so that's enough to offset um income tax federal income tax so we yeah. could abolish we're, we're we're in very comfortable range of abolishing federal income tax and replacing it with the land tax if we wanted um how you do that is another matter and i have a lot to say on that which we might not have time to get into because sure. I, I have no illusions about the political challenges that this kind of movement faces absolutely um okay so land's a big deal you let's say you did right let's say you replaced the uh the current taxation system with land value tax um the next bit of your book you get into how that won't just be passed on to tenants and make everything more expensive. So right, that's objection. That that's objection yeah. number two is that it's like, hey, slow your roll here, Mr. Tax Guy. Like <laughs> every single tax in the universe winds up being passed on to the customer. The person at the bottom of the chain ultimately has to bear the tax. Right. So isn't this, we're in a housing crisis and you're gonna solve it with taxes. Isn't that just gonna raise everyone's prices? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of bad real estate taxes, like a, a transfer tax, which I believe is stamp duty in the in the the kind of like Commonwealth countries, right? Which yeah. is like you got to pay a price every time you want to sell your house, mm -hmm. right? And that like obviously causes people to be less likely to sell their house, with like you know makes the housing crisis worse. 
Sure. So a land tax, and we've already talked about property taxes problems, but a land tax is really unique. And um, it's the one tax that cannot be passed on to a tenant. So if you're a landlord and you're paying a land tax, you actually cannot pass on the, and the land tax is levied on you, you actually can't pass it on to your tenant, which seems really weird because it seems like you should be able to do that. And not only are there theoretical arguments for why it shouldn't happen, and the basic essence of it is that you can't make more land, you can make more cigarettes or more oil. So if you tax cigarettes or oil, it shuts production of those things down at the margin. Like there's some marginal oil well that's not worth producing if taxes go up by a cent. So sure. you get that much less oil, you reduce the supply, demand is the same, price goes up, right? Sure. But that doesn't happen with land because, you know, and so the landlord has to eat the tax. But that's just theory. Who cares about theory? What happens in reality? Yeah. Well, there's been a lot of studies on this. There's this one particularly good study out of Denmark. But then, even if you don't believe the Danish paper, there's all these other papers that also show that um, land value tax is what they call fully capitalized into the price of land. And so what does that mean? It means that, okay, so if I am a landlord, you know, I have this property, it can generate, let's say, $1,000 a year in rents just to make the math easy. Sure. Okay. And like, let's say my, you know, my time horizon is 10 years. Like I want to make my money back in 10 years. Therefore, I'm willing to pay $10,000 to buy it now. Sure. So, so basically its value is the net present value of an income flow. Mm -hmm. So if that income flow goes down by half, I'm willing to pay half to hold sure. it. Right. And that's the mechanism by which a land value tax is fully capitalized. It um, basically redirects half the income flow to the taxing agency. And that means that the selling price of the land has to go down, but it has to be borne by um, the landlord. And it doesn't, and empirically, it doesn't result in an increase in rents for tenants. Um, tenants actually pay less. And it also further incentivizes the landlords to like build more units because yeah. that's how they're going to, that's how they're going to dodge the tax. You know, because those those extra units shouldn't be taxed under a land value tax system, and so it was a really interesting finding. It wasn't necessarily what you would expect to find, but it's sure. it's it has to do with the uniqueness of land that makes that possible. Yeah, that's interesting, and I can kind of reason about why, like how and why that makes sense. Because when you're dealing with property tax, it's the you know it's the value of the, the building itself and, and all that, and so if you build more units, then that's more cost that your your tenants have to bear. But if it is just a land tax, then it's kind of baked in already. And then mm -hmm. you want to you want to distribute that across more tenants as much as possible, right? Just so you right. can stay competitive. Right. And we've seen it not only in real life, we've seen it in the virtual world, you know, yeah. where um, uh, most famously in EVE Online, where they had a land-like asset. It was called factories, which you would think is capital. But the way it was modeled in the game as an asset that was scarce, provided directly by the developers, they wouldn't make any more of them. You needed them to build ships and they were really valuable in certain star systems more than others because of adjacency, just perfect sure. land-like asset. Nice. And early on, um, they ran right into a speculative housing crisis <laughs> because people were squatting on the factories because they're like, if you want ships, you gotta talk to me. <laughs> you gotta talk to me, bro, if you wanna build a ship. Right. You gotta pay the rent if you wanna build a ship, you know? Yeah. And so um, an economist called Raman Chakrazade came in, looked at this, and he had no knowledge of Georgeism or Henry George, by the way. He mm -hmm. just comes in and he's like, you got to charge a holding fee for these factories. Like as long as you're in, as long as you're insisting that you're not going to make more of these factories, that like these factories are basically just land, 
you need to charge a holding fee so that anyone who's going to hold it is going to like build a bunch of ships mm -hmm. so that they can justify that tax. And, um, and so they did it and it worked. And then <laughs> he posts about this 10 years later on Game Developer. Um, and I'm in the comments and I'm like, hey, Ramin, are, are you a Georgist? This sounds like Henry George's land value tax. He's like, who's that? And I was like, I explained. He's like, oh, no, I just reasoned from first principles. Seems like a reasonable idea. It solved the problem. And Very I was cool. like, that's really cool that um, we not only reproduce the problem in the virtual world, but then we also <laughs> reproduce the solution without any knowledge of its original um, origins. And that um, that's happened multiple times. Not necessarily the solution, but recreating the problem. In fact, it happens in almost every MMO and online game and even crypto games that have what we call land-like assets. Um, but anyway, yeah, the idea is that you have this holding fee. The land value tax is a holding fee, which creates a hot potato effect. Like you don't want to hold this just to sit on it. You want to hold on it only if you want to use it. Hmm. Very cool. Um, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I think that when we're looking at game assets and all that, it's a, I love how much of a sandbox we get with video games and, and virtual worlds where you, know, you you can apply these concepts directly from the real world and, and see it in the microcosm that moves much more rapidly and all that. So mm -hmm. very cool. Um, okay, so the last objection of the book uh, that you address is that unimproved land can't be accurately assessed in practice. What do you right. mean by that? Okay, so this is this is Hayek's objection. So Friedrich Hayek was inspired by Henry George to go into um, economics in the first place, and he loved the idea. But he's like, okay, the problem is it's the calculation issue. Sure. Is and and this is kind of the same, and 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 so this is like the argument capitalists rightly make against socialism, which is it's like, okay, you're going to run this perfect economy, but how do you know how much like bread Paris needs? How mm -hmm. much like how many hammers? You know. The market will figure that out with price signals. If you try to like calculate the economy from your little central office, you just can't do it, right? right? And so that argument is then extrapolated to say, okay, I don't believe that you can tell me what the land is worth, right? Okay. You know, because it's like, okay, there's real estate transactions that are out here. Um, people buy land and buildings together. They don't buy land a la carte, you know? Sure. I mean, occasionally people, we have vacant land sales, but most sales are for the building and the land. And so you can't tell me what's what. And because you can't do that, therefore the whole thing is hopeless. And um, and my counter argument is it's like, well, have we done the math? Have we tried? Have we looked into it? Like, what's the status quo? Can we improve on it? And right. what are the results? And um, so far, I think the results are very promising. You know, there is definitely the case that th assessment is not perfect everywhere. In fact, in many places, it is quite bad. Mm -hmm. But um, there's been so much development, particularly in the last 10 years, with new GIS technology and stuff. All we're trying to do is basically do two problems, right? Sure. We're trying to predict how much a property is going to sell for, roughly. Mm -hmm. And then we're trying to predict how much of it is represents demand for that location. Right. Versus like demand for basically anything at that location, regardless, like like if that building wasn't there and a lot of modern um, and a lot of Stone Age algorithms, frankly, a lot of modern algorithms and a lot of really old algorithms are actually quite good at, at, at doing this to a reasonable degree of precision because it doesn't have to be perfect. Like, OK, so there's the 100 percent single tax dream, which is we charge land at its full rental value. Right. 
Yeah. But like the status quo is we charge it at effectively zero. So mm -hmm. if we can move just even to like a fraction of it, we'll see partial results like sure. without having to get a revolution underway. And in fact, right. one of the things we could do is we already have property tax systems. So if we could just pass a universal building exemption, we could have a partial land value tax now and it would be partially good. Uh, you know, and then we just need to um, dial ourselves in and improve the error margin. And so actually, like I've um, a friend of mine and I have actually started a company to just do this ourselves. You know, we started off of a research grant from Astral Codex 10 and we're just really pursuing this idea of, you know, basically one a guy came up in the comments and is just like, you know, if you really think that you could solve the calculation problem, you know, you could make a lot of money. And right. therefore, you can't do it. I'm just like challenge accepted. <laughs> this is my career now. Yeah. You know, like I still make video games, and I'm I've got a video game coming out next year, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna release that. But this is now my um, you know, I used to be into consulting as my day job. Um, mm -hmm. that's a dirty secret of any video game developer. We always have a day job. Yeah. You know, to subsidize the game <laughs> development, right? right? So my day my day job had been consulting, and for the last year was all crypto video game stuff, and so I've left that now to um shout out to Novik. They they've been they've been very good to me. I'm I'm sad to see them go. But now my day job is um uh, municipal property tax assessment. I tell people that I'm leaving the exciting world of of um video game consulting for the exciting world of um municipal property tax assessment consulting. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah so we're we 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 you know this international association of assessment officers is a standards body. Mm -hmm. And so we've recruited um, one of their former researchers to kind of level us up on all the latest stuff between multiple regression analysis and tree-based models, you know, and uh, geographic weighted regression. And I can just like name drop all the fancy algorithms, but like we're really getting into the weeds and, and trying to just do our level best to mm -hmm. um, accurately assess property in general. And then mm -hmm. also split out the rate of land relative to buildings. And then also make sure that it doesn't just spit out numbers, but spits out credible numbers. Because a huge part of it is that um, property tax assessments need to survive appeals, right? Sure. So we're not just trying to convince grumpy people in the comments section. We're trying to convince actual taxpayers that this new system is fair and equitable and transparent. And so we're going to go with an open source model behind it. I'm not trying to give a huge sales pitch for it, so I won't no, even right. name it. But like, I mean, I just, I just basically like someone challenged me that it was impossible, and I was just like, you know what? If I really believe in this, and I think this is the way to change the world, I think this is actually the best objection. I think it's the biggest practical obstacle because if we could fix, um, if we could have level up the status of assessments, mm -hmm. not only does the policy then become, you know, much more possible, but it's impossible without that data to even advocate for the sure. policy. Because we talked about the three big objections, land isn't a big deal, um, it'll be passed on to tenants and you can't assess it. But there's more that come up. And they're just like, kind of weird to me at first, because I'm so into it. But like, people be like, you're gonna bankrupt farmers. And I'm like, <laughs> land value tax, not land area. We're not going right. to charge you per acre. Dude, right. your farmland is essentially worthless. You're going to get a tax yeah. break, you right. know? Right. And then it occurred to me, it's like, oh, I need to be able to show people on a map what the effect of this policy is going to be because they're going to imagine some scary scenario mm -hmm. that it's like, we're going to tax the suburbs out of existence because <laughs> we're crazy urbanists who hate you, you right. know? Right. And it's like, that's not actually what's going to happen. We're going to push it towards the city center because right. that's where... Um, that's where the value is. Here's this giant, scary asymptote. 
and it just goes exponential as you go to the city center and that's where the taxes should be to improve um development incentives and stuff and so if you haven't done and so that's been my lesson throughout this is like you got to do the math so that you can come forearm to show people and so then they're just like oh like i might even save under this tax system and, and of course you know not everyone's going to save you know we're the whole point mm -hmm. is to raise taxes and shift taxes, you know, but politically you want to make sure that, you know, there's going to be a winning political coalition at the end of the day before yeah. you've stepped in with the proposal that you can show who pays more, who pays less, and also show that it's fair. Yeah. Right. And then be prepared for every objection. And in order to do that, you have to do the math and there's a lot of math to do. And now that's become my life's work. <laughs> that's cool. Um, yeah. I think it's really interesting that this is kind of like this third party concept, right? Where you you can totally ignore the well not ignore but you can you can step around the current like you know socialist versus capitalist debate and say you know this is something that can fit into either of your models right um, and so we can kind of be this nonpartisan um and it's really it's about simplification at least you know in my interpretation here like if you were to move to this as 100% of the tax burden and replace all the other taxes um that would be really cool for one. And for two, it would simplify government spending. You, know, you wouldn't really need the IRS or at least it would take a much different form. Right. Um, and yeah, it, it seems like there's a, um, there's a clear case to be made where you know, whatever the, the hundred percent case is, if you could just model out, you know, every year for a hundred years, we're going to increase the, uh, the the portion by one percent that comes from land value tax then it's a very gradual everybody can get used to the idea um at some point it'll be it'll no longer be worth it for you to squat on your surface parking lot and you'll want to start adapting so you'll be ready for the next 50 years of this these increases or something like that right um, you know the, the, the political angle i kind of imagine starting with is something called a split rate property tax, right? Just legalize that. And that means you, you're allowed to tax buildings and land at different rates. And mm -hmm. so telling people land value tax, 100%, they get really scared because they're like, I paid a hundred thousand for this. You're gonna charge me a hundred thousand. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. If you could rent that for like 2000 a year, that's what we charge a hundred percent of the rental value. Right. Right. And so, but it's also like, I mean, it's always hard to lead with like, we're going to do a tax policy. <laughs> but property tax reform is quite popular and tax exemptions are popular. So if you reframe it and you're like, look, what we're actually going to do is we're going to exempt you on the tax of all your buildings. And mm -hmm. step one should just be like, we're not even going to raise the amount the city collects. City's right. going to collect the exact same amount of taxes. If they collected, I don't know, hundred million before for however big of a city needs that they're going to collect hundred million tomorrow, yeah. but where they're going to collect it from is going to change. So even if the assessed value of your land increases, if it increases much less significantly than the land in the city center, your taxes could go down, right? Yeah. And your building's going to go untaxed. And mm -hmm. so that I feel is a much more popular like first step. And that could already just alleviate so many problems with the housing crisis and then municipal budgets being able to like not go broke and therefore have to go into debt, which leads into bond initiatives and inflation, you know? Um, I think that could be just a much better, more efficient way to run our cities and doesn't require necessarily changing a huge amount of laws, sure. right? You could start on the local level. It's just like, just exempt the buildings and fix the assessment, level up the assessments a little bit with modern methods, exempt the buildings, see what happens.
do yeah. some studies. Are we happy with the results? Is the political coalition happy? Are the citizens happy? Does the city keep growing? Great. Let's 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 go to the next one and and kind of spin up from there. That's kind of my pitch to it. And kind of like no one's going to get a hundred percent LVT overnight. Like it's going to sure. be a gradual process. Um, but I think there's a path there if we do the math first and yeah, yeah. comfort people into knowing what changes are actually on the table. And like, and I mean, breaking that out into like per constituent, like Mr. Smith, here's a mailer for what the new proposed policy will mean for your bottom line. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and if I could double click on something just to yeah, say, you said like kind of third party, right? Nonpartisan. That's, that's a really interesting framing. And we get that a lot, but there's another way I look at it too, which is we have and it's generally true, like we have left Georgists and we have right Georgists and geolibertarians, geoconservatives, mm -hmm. geoliberals, as we call them within our coalition, mm -hmm. you know, so it's a pretty big tent. But the way I put it is less that it's like, I believe that the left right framing is a false frame and that yeah. it's less it's less that we're enlightened centrists who are just obnoxiously picking a spot in the middle because we refuse to pick a side so right. much as I describe it as we are doing chemistry after the periodic table the okay. traditional left-right axis is doing chemistry without the periodic table they're doing alchemy they yeah. don't understand all the elements in the world they're missing one of the three elements which is land uh, and because of that they can't fully reason correctly and so they wound up basically locked destined to have this fight of labor and capital but we're like capital is actually capital and land and this is the problem. And when you step back in three dimensions and see what's happening, you see what the fight is actually about and what the solution should be. And you can still have the rest of your left-leaning beliefs and the rest of your right-leaning beliefs or whatever and come yeah. together on this issue and solve it for everybody because everybody has this problem. Hmm. And then once Very we've solved cool. that, we go right back to arguing about the rest of the stuff that we're that just, just as a fine old American tradition, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm convinced. Um, I, yeah, I, I look forward to, to digging into the book more because I think there's a lot to this and I'm already seeing how this you know, kind of shape. It, it definitely changes a lot of assumptions that people have who are coming from, you know, the traditional left-right dichotomy, right? Right, right, right. Um, cool. All right. So hopefully that's enough of an overview for everybody digging into like the the concepts of this and how it applies to um you know taxation uh there's definitely a lot here you know when you're looking at rural land versus city center and that kind of thing i am curious how you handle like public owned land you know city parks how, how does that impact the uh the value and then how, do you tax that how do you tax that right so there's a couple of answers to that question so first of all when we talk about the government, that's yeah. wrong because it's singular. We have a lot of governments mm -hmm. in America. We have local governments, we have state governments, we have federal governments, we have county governments, we have municipal governments, we have city governments. We have, sometimes we have independent districts that like work with those others, but are like sovereign in some way. Like we have appraisal districts in Texas and independent school districts. And like, yeah. then you sometimes will have like a water district and like, it's all really confusing. So yeah. in one sense, you could have it that like, yes, the government should pay taxes because they are one of 50 governments. <laughs> yeah. And then like, they're just another entity that owns something just like everybody else and they should pay their taxes on it. And mm -hmm. then you, you know, through a political situation, decide how to reapportion your government money to your various government agencies. But one government is just like any other and should pay its taxes. Sure. You know, so that's one argument. Um, in more simpler arguments, like 
So like, I mean, your LVT could start as like a state or a county level thing, but in a world where if it was federal, then you have that question of it's like, well, what about these publicly owned lands? Does it pay taxes to itself? Does that mean there's no tax on it? Like, right. how does that cash out? Right. And so um, one thing is that, and this is another part of like why we need to do the math. A lot of cities own a lot of land mm. and they don't know what they're sitting on. Like the value of some of this land is quite vast and yeah. they're not really utilizing it well, partly because they don't realize how valuable it is. So one thing we could do is that you don't necessarily need a land value tax. Like the problem land value tax solves is it captures what we call the land rent, like mm -hmm. the recurring income or rental value or, or like beneficial value of holding that land for a period of time. The land value tax captures that and it it's a very pragmatic way to do it without having to change the current rules about ownership of land. And George still thought, it wasn't just a pragmatic decision for George because George did believe it would be best for someone to and have the right to decide what to do with it on an individual rather than on a, like a committee basis. Like, right. you know, as long as just the rental value was properly handled, then it would be better. But you could still own land, which means you have the sole right to decide what happens to it. But if the government owns land, they can lease it out. And the cool thing about leasing out land um, is that at least as long as you do it on like a short enough basis is you skip the assessment problem mm. because what's the land worth? I don't know. Here's an auction. What do you want to pay for it? 50 people. You know what I mean? Just like, yeah. Hey market, who wants some land? You yeah. can lease it for this long. Okay. Well, that's the market value of the land and I'm the government and I'm leasing it to you. So that's the land value tax. I don't even have to do any math. Like the market right. just told me what it's worth, right? And um, believe it or not, um, like some people are like, well, that you could never like get buildings built on leased land. It's like, nope, happens all the time. The yep. Empire State Building was built on leased land, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> and um, the issue with leased land is then you have issues with like, um, if it's like a 99 year lease, then like right. you've drifted quite far away from market value because you haven't reassessed it in 99 years, you know? Right, right. And so then you have to like figure out some things with that. But I think the government should lease out a lot of its land holdings um, at the very least. I think it, I think we should probably like compel the government to like put some of its best land to use. This is where we get a little bit more to a fourth objection about like environmentalism and stuff is it's like, does Georgism mean we need to pave the earth and cut down every tree, you know, like put every forest to its highest and best use. And right. what actually happens is that sometimes the highest and best use of land is to do nothing with it. Sure. All of the land around Central Park is worth more because yeah. of Central Park. And that increase in value is greater than if you were to pave over Central Park and just build apartments on it. Right. right? So from the city's perspective of I want to maximize my land revenue now that land tax is my base, mm -hmm. building these improvements causes spillover effects to nearby things. Yeah. So building a park somewhere, holding some land out of use for a good purpose, like a mm -hmm. park or a green space, rather than just like a weedy overgrown lot that does nothing, right. you know, increases the value by more than the opportunity cost of not building there. Yeah. And you yeah, didn't build something sense. there. You just built something good, right? And, right? and the other thing is that land value tax combats sprawl. Sprawl is the status quo. Mm -hmm. Right. I can't afford to live in the city, so I'll live in the suburbs. Can't afford to live in the suburbs, so I'm gonna live in the exurbs. Can't afford to live in the exurbs, so I'm gonna go buy some farmer's land. So <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna turn it into a ranch house. Okay. Mm -hmm. Farmer, you know, it's too expensive to buy that land for farming. So I'm gonna clear some forest yeah. and, to do some farming. So basically by 
pulling stuff inward through land value tax by encouraging good development, you actually stop the number one cause of environmental degradation, which is sprawl. <laughs> you know, and so like yeah. you get net increase of trees. Yeah. You know, so that's um that kind of angle. Yeah, yeah. And, and you reduce, you know, the need for driving and um exactly. And, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I, I like what you said at the top with uh, governments could pay taxes because they're all like, you know, independent entities. Um, mm -hmm. I could see how you could boil that down and have, at least if we're talking about the US, have the federal government basically only collect taxes from 50, 51 entities, right? And mm -hmm. then uh, each of those entities gets to decide how they get their taxes at, at a at a more granular level and that kind of thing. So. Oh yeah, we haven't even talked about tax compliance. Yeah, like one of the major issues, uh, so one, one, one argument against land value taxes, it's like, oh, these assessors are like gonna come into my house and like snoop through my underwear drawer and like see if I've like tiled my bathroom to like value my house, right? right. You know, all this invasion of privacy. We think about it, the IRS is this massive invasion of privacy, mm -hmm. right? And the only reason it's even there, like one of the reasons for the surveillance state is so that we can be taxed on our incomes. The government right. wouldn't necessarily even care about our incomes, except for the fact that they are entitled to a portion of it as tax. Right. And so um, with, and this is the advantage of land value taxes in the assessment question, land characteristics don't change as much as building characteristics. And our models are able to kind of pick up on this. Like, I don't necessarily need to care whether you remodeled your bathroom if I only care about the land value because right. I can do ways I can look at your neighbor's properties and sales and, and, and see that like land value is not going to change drastically. Like I can basically, I don't need as much property characteristic information. If I don't care about your building's value, I only care about the land value. And so I can with fewer tax officers and fewer invasions of privacy, assess the value of your land. And then here's the thing. I don't care who owns the land. Mm. I just basically say, Hey, this address, make sure a check comes in the mail. I don't care. I don't care if it's 50 LLCs deep. Right. Just put the money in the box. I don't care if you're a Cyclops who, who lives on a Greek island. I don't care yeah. if you're, you're a Bond villain who lives on Mount Skull. Just, just make sure the check appears in the mail for this address. That's cool. Yep. And that is not the case with income and capital taxes because you have to figure out who owns it because you have to figure out where it is. Right. It's in the Caymans. It's in a Swiss bank account. It's it's it, it's gone. But the one thing Jeff Bezos cannot do is move all of the land that he owns somewhere else. Hmm. And even if he hides that he's the owner, we don't care that we know that Jeff Bezos is paying his land taxes. We just care that the addresses of his land holdings pay their taxes. Yeah. yeah. And so it's this massive. And then sales taxes are are pretty regressive too. And not just regressive for poor people, mm -hmm. but also for um, small businesses. Yeah. The compliance cost for, let me see, do I have this? Yeah, so like the compliance cost of sales tax is, um, let me see which one it is in, I think that's under, okay, I don't have it right now, but it's like, I'll tell you in a sec here. Yeah, that's right. Sales tax. Yeah. Okay. So the study finds the national average annual state and local retail sales tax compliance cost in 2003 was 3.09% of sales taxes collected for all retailers, 13.47% for small retailers, 5.2 for medium and 2.17 for large retailers. Right. Wow. And then the IRS's tax compliance is of course outsourced to us right. because we have to buy TurboTax and all of that yep. garbage yep. and that's basically comes out to like six to 12% of our income tax <laughs> of the income tax that's collected 
is like we pay a six to twelve percent more in compliance right. on an outsourced cost. It's not like the government even eats that. They make us pay it on top of the and then all the time and the stress and the worrying that it's April, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so like another advantage of land value tax is just like the compliance cost is like so much just better. Yeah, yeah. It's better and, and it's it's not regressive, like you said, because right. there, there's clearly like, you know, if you're paying six to twelve percent on average of your income tax, for people who are paying or are making less income, it's a much higher percentage compared to right. somebody who has, you know. Crazy amounts. Yeah. That figure is six to twelve percent of the total amount collected. I'm not sure how it works out per individual, but it's sure. it's. Yeah. I know that I in in pain in the butt dollars for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is not captured in this figure. You know, right. like my April is one of the worst months of the year. You know, I hate it. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Okay. So so we've talked about how this applies, uh, obviously in the real world with uh, land taxation and that sort of thing. We danced around domain names and and uh, ENS domains and that kind of thing. Um, video games with Eve Online. Um, with the, when we talk about like this environment that's kind of arising out of blockchain with the metaverse and simulation games and that kind of thing, um, how do you see this applying? Because right. there's there's clearly like like you mentioned, you know, you've got like teleportation and instancing of worlds and these kinds of things. So you get this really complex shape to. Uh, what is proximity and how do you determine the value of certain lands uh, compared with others? Yeah, can I can I share a screen real quick here? Uh, yeah, with me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are is this an audio only recording? This is audio only, but I will uh, also okay. put the images up for people to see. Okay, so this is kind of the heart of my argument here is that I have, and so I just narrated an audiobook, so I'm practiced in narrating figures that I can't depict visually in an audio-only format. Great. So here is a figure. It is a um, it is a image that shows a, an arrow showing a spectrum from land-like to unland-like. Mm -hmm. And there's four assets here. There's a plot of land, there's a permit, there's a unicorn, and there's a horse. And so mm -hmm. for each of these, there's three characteristics, little check marks. And all three of the check marks are checked under plot of land, and then none of them are under horse. So it's like most land-like to least land-like. And so sure. those characteristics are scarce in supply, necessary for production, and obtains locational value. So a plot of land, like um, you know, in, in like a game that perfectly represents the real world's characteristics, like land would be a land-like asset. It's the most landy. Yeah. But then there's this thing called a permit which is scarce and necessary for production, but it has no location value. So here's an example. Sure. Let's say I have an MMO and there's a witch's guild, right? Uh -huh. So you must um, have a permit, a witch's permit, a professional witch's permit in order to brew potions, right? Sure. So there's scarce, there's only 10,000 of them on the server and you mm -hmm. need them, they gatekeep access to producing potions. So they're necessary for production, and they're, but they're fungible. It doesn't matter where they are. So yeah. any permit is as good as any other. So that means that you, if you're say a um, a master witch or warlock or whatever, you could, I could be your apprentice witch. And mm -hmm. now by paying rent essentially to you, I could gain access to your permits through mm -hmm. you to practice potion making, right? Sure. And so this is less of a good speculative asset than the land from which the elderberries grow, which are necessary to produce all potions. So yeah. the landlord who sits there has the real whip hand, but you can still extract value you didn't produce by basically gatekeeping access to the permit. It's kind of mm -hmm. like a taxi medallion in real life, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And then one step down is the unicorn. This is scarce in supply. There's only 10,000 on the server, but you don't need it, right? There's nothing yeah. the unicorn produces that you can't do otherwise. It's just really useful and cool. Um, mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where it is. Like, you know, it, it's not more or less valuable depending on where it is. And then there's a horse. Horses are not scarce. They're not mm -hmm. necessary for anything. They're just really good. A horse is just capital here. And it yeah. obtains locational value. It doesn't obtain any locational value. And um, the whole, ah, sorry, I clicked on Discord. Um, right. And so then the, the whole thing with the horse is that it's like, and, and you can make more horses. You can make more baby horses. You know, a breeder can produce more of them. And so, sure. um, and so basically what I, my, my insight here is not like, is something land, is it not land? It's how landy is it, right? Mm. And it's also like, this is economic properties. It's not theme because in the virtual world, you can make anything be anything, right? So you could call something land and it's not land like at all, right? right. For instance, you could make more of it and it mm -hmm. might not be necessary for production, right? And then in Eve, their land like asset was a factory, which mm -hmm. has the theme of something more like a permit or a horse or a unicorn, but the way they actually implemented it it was implemented basically effectively as if it was land. And mm -hmm. so um, there's a rich history of MMOs kind of dabbling in this accidentally. Um, mm -hmm. Most famously would be Ultima Online, I would say, because okay. I remember playing that game, yeah, for those who are younger than me, which would be illegal, <laughs> but um, for the people who are younger than me, Ultima Online is one of the first kind of modern MMOs, okay. you know, before that, like most MMOs were like text-based, we call them MUDs. And so it was the first, like not the first graphical MMO, but like the first like super popular one. Yeah. And um, so it was like a couple years before WoW kind of redefined the genre. And I remember playing it as a teenager. And so you could buy enough money to build a house, but you could not find a place to put it oh, because yeah. all the land was taken. And so one of the things is I checked back in and Ultima Online still going. You <laughs> can still play Ultima Online. And they still have a housing crisis. It's huh. been like 20, 25, I think they just had their 25th anniversary and the housing crisis is still going and they haven't solved it. And then I started looking into these other MMOs and a lot of them, whenever they have land-like assets, they have the same problem. And mm -hmm. so I interviewed Raf Koster, who is the designer of Ultima Online. And he tells me like, yeah, we had this problem in Star Wars Galaxies too. Like you could build player built cities. And so what people would do is they would build them around dungeon entrances mm. to basically create a toll booth in front of the dungeon to gatekeep access to the dungeon. So it's like, oh, you want to go and raid in this dungeon and get all these resources that only spawn there? You have to pay me. Oh, it's wow. like it's like it's like literal robber barons on the Rhine who huh. are like, it's like if you want to cross the Rhine, you have to pay me. Um, yeah. And so um, it's happened in tons of MMOs that I've seen. And it famously happened in crypto games because mm -hmm. crypto games had this whole virtual real estate boom for a while with Decentraland, Axie Infinity, uh, Other Side with Board Ape Yacht Club and um, uh, The Sandbox and, and, and a bunch of others. And at my work for Novik, one of my big predictions, um, I kind of put myself out on the line and like went out on a limb and said, I think these guys are all gonna face problems um, related to land speculation. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much how it played out. And um, there are some differences with virtual real estate than real real estate. And that sure. is that you can opt out of the metaverse. You can't yeah, opt out right. of the real world. Well, you can, but we highly discourage that, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Very right. cool. And so, um, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll kick it back to you in case you have any questions you want to poke on, on that whole spiel.
No, that's good. I I like the uh, the land like versus unland like comparison and how that is a, a gradient. Um, it feels like there's probably more properties and, and more granularity to this than just scarce and supply necessary for production and sure, for sure. additional value. Um, but I guess like in terms of video games, if we're talking about um, taxing things that are land-like or, or not land-like, I guess, do you just do a little bit for things that are less land-like and more for things that are more land-like? Like, oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, I mean, yeah, so that's kind of a, a policy question. Like my policy prescription is, first of all, try not to create land-like assets in the first place hmm, because okay. in the virtual world, you're not limited by physics, sure. right? So a lot of people have created land-like assets by accident, but a lot of people have created them intentionally, especially in crypto games. They intentionally yeah. created them because they knew like their white papers are blaring, scarce, and yeah. everyone will need it. Get right. yours now. You can make value from your neighbors and charge people rent. And yeah. so like people bought on that promise thinking that they were going to use it to get rich. And the problem is you can opt out of the metaverse, but you can't opt out of real life. Right. And so these metaverse games are trying in essence to be UGC platforms, user generated content, Roblox right. basically, right? You don't have to buy land to make content in Roblox. Right. And that's why they have all this creative energy. People are just creating all these projects because you don't need to ask anyone's permission. You don't have to pay anyone rent for the privilege of creating content for free for the platform. Right. And so these platforms are like, I've got a great idea. Um, we're not gonna let anyone create content for our platform unless they pay some third party. Mm. And that causes, it, it causes ghost towns basically. It causes like real, there's enough friction already on Web3 games with the Web3 wallet sign on. Like, I don't understand why you would add a, another hard requirement like that, that like sits between people and coming onto your system to make UGC, you know? And then the other problem is once you have sold, pre-sold a bunch of land-like assets, and this is the problem we have in the real world, is you have a bought-in political coalition with something to lose if you change the system, right? right? And that, that, that's how we like, we have to do our political Kung Fu to get around that in the real world. And that's a thorny problem we'll solve and we'll solve it. But like in the virtual world, it's like, why give yourself a new problem that, mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly what we saw with Axie Infinity when they're like, okay, well, we're going to create some like free land that at least allows people to like do a little bit without owning the Axie land. And their right. landowners got mad and rightly so, because it's like, I put like thousands of dollars into my land plot on the promise that people would need to come to me. And mm -hmm. now you're making that land less necessary for production, right? You're taking yeah. that land-like asset and moving it down the scale and trying to see how much you can get away with yeah. to solve your economic problem. But you're making me mad because I bought in and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and so, um, so there's a challenge there. And, um, but in terms of actual policy, like, do you tax it a lot? Do you tax it a little? Like first try to avoid the problem in the first place. And I've written a policy paper with Dan Cook for, virtual worlds and MMOs and crypto games of what they can possibly do. Um, just, just a policy paper, we put it out there for free. Um, but there's in the virtual world, you have other options that we don't have in the real world because the virtual world lets us dictate the rules of physics. Sure. So like assessments easier because you can sell land and building separately. Like I can put your building in your pocket and you can perfectly transport it anywhere. You can't do that in real life. So you yeah, can bid yeah. on land and building separately. Secondly, you can just have the government, you know, you as the game developer own all the land and just lease it out. You skip the assessment step, you automatically collect the land rent. You just, it's like, hey, if you wanna be here, you pay a recurring fee based off of market demand. And, you know, 
And then we don't even need to demo whatever cool thing you built there. It just goes in your pocket. And if there's too much demand for this location, you got to move somewhere else, but it's free to move, you know? And so therefore we know that the hottest spots go to the people who are producing the most value for our community. You mm -hmm. know, there's other ways to allocate it too. And sure, let me know when, if we're going too long and you need to hop off here, but no, I, I, I've got a little bit more time. So but the other good. one, the other one is that um, there's more creative ways to allocate land. Um, okay. They're not necessarily any, they're not necessarily good, but they're interesting. And sure. in video games, interesting is good, right? Yeah. So um, one of them is this thing I call blood taxes, because this is the way animals allocate land. And it's okay. basically fight me for it, right? <laughs> yeah. And in a world where defense is generally cheaper than attack, uh -huh. Generally, this makes it so it's like if you're going to try to like take land from someone, you're not going to try to hold land you're not capable of defending, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which means you're not going to take land and sit on it unless you're willing to invest enough in defense to justify you holding it, right? right. And so this basically means like, so if you've got a game that's already about war, you could kind of direct it to this usage. And a really good example of this is um, if you're familiar with Reddit, are you much of a Redditor? A bit, yeah. Do you remember Reddit slash r slash place? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. for the audience, this was, it started as an April Fool's joke, and they brought it back a couple years later, this year, I believe, where basically it's just a grid of pixels, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a community art mural building project where yeah. any Redditor, every, what was it, every five minutes? I forget. It was something like that, yeah. Yeah, every X minutes, you could place one pixel in like one of like 12 colors or something. Right. And that was it. That's all you could do. And emerging from this was this like chaotic world of like people building collaborative murals. And what it essentially is, is like this blood tax idea I have. It's like, if you want to own a space, mm -hmm. you've got to like fight people for it, but right. you're not fighting with blood. You're fighting with attention, right? right? With time, which makes it quite stressful. And there's the problem with blood taxes, but it's interesting <laughs> from a game design perspective right. is it's like, so what you would do is you would coordinate with your groups on discord. And so like we were the Georgists and so like, we we allied with with this group called the neoliberals and we were like their little cousins and they would be like okay we will protect your land so like this is your parcel up here so the first thing we do is like put a rectangle and we're gonna like write like just tax land lol is our little and then our little badge and then right. so like but then other people will randomly like vandalize it you know and then sure. your neighbors like the swedes who are putting up a big swedish flag that's just taking over all this territory you know it's like right. you need to defend your border. So like you get an ally to come in and it's like every time you get vandalized, they come in and repair it because they know what you're trying to build. And so they'll fix it for you. But then like we were like, OK, so here comes the Swedish flag. And then we had some community next to us. I forget who they were. You know what I mean? Like like some other flag. Um, and then like the Swedes just like ate them and we're like, oh, no, we lost our buffer <laughs> state. Like we were trying to protect them. And it's right. like now there's nothing between the Swedish menace and us. And we're like, OK, that's OK. Put, you know, we're resettling them here as, as a refugee state where they'll be safe mm -hmm. from the Swedes. And then um, and then we would try to, like, um, increase the font of our of our drawing. And then it would constantly get we'd coordinate amongst ourselves, but we constantly get a race. We're like, what's going on? So we talked to our allies. It's like, are you giving us friendly fire? And they're like, no, no, that's coming from the furries. We're like, <laughs> we're not even in diplomatic relations with the furries. So we go over to the furries. And we're like, what's up, bro? We're trying to, like, change our thing. And they're like, oh, oh we were just protecting you because. If, if you go down, then the Swedes eat us next. So <laughs> our diplomats right. go over. And all of this emerges from just the rule of just place a pixel every five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Right? All this like crazy politics and stuff. 
And I mean, it's a heck of a stressful game because basically right. you got to have like 50 nerds who have nothing better to do with their entire weekend than to just like camp Reddit, right? <laughs> you right. know. But it's an example of land policy on some system other than fee simple tenure, which is what you go buy land and then you own it until you sell it to somebody else. Right, right. And, okay. and, and, and you created all this dynamic expressive stuff and like crazy things. And so I don't think blood taxes are by any way the ideal system. <laughs> But sure. within certain contexts where you want a little chaos and a little Dark Souls, it can be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, very cool. Um, I mean, I can kind of see how you would apply this even outside of like a true war type environment, right? Where, mm -hmm. um, like, I'm currently looking at building an, an ENS-like uh, mm -hmm. system on another blockchain. And you could do this if you wanted to prevent camping on high-value domains um by basically making it you know instead of having to pay an annual fee you have to deposit tokens right and then right. if somebody else comes in and deposits more than you and can right. maintain that for a long enough period of time maybe they could steal it from you right uh, yeah i mean there's there's a lot of things to go into i i really recommend vitalik buterin's um he wrote a big blog post on his blog about i think it was bid based demand-based recurring fees for sure. if, anyway look it up it's on his blog it's it's really great it's really well thought out and it goes into all these nuances because sure. like and this is where it's important to understand the difference between real land and virtual quote-unquote land right. is like and here's a good example with a domain name system there's identity attached right mm -hmm. and so like if you buy my house no one's gonna think you're me like right. maybe you'll get my mail for a couple of weeks and there's like some vulnerabilities there. But like, I, I mean, I could tell the post office to like stop ahead of time and avoid that. But with the right. domain name system, especially when it's also like doubling as a wallet, mm -hmm. there's an incentive for me to steal through legitimate or illegitimate means Vitalik.eth for right. reasons other than just, you know, just, yeah, just yeah, props. Yeah. Like, because then I can capture any anyone sending money to Vitalik thinking that they're sending it to Vitalik, but actually they're sending it to me. And right. so, and he gets into all the weeds of all of this stuff and um, comes up with like, so what he comes up with is not exactly like land value tax, but is very inspired by it and adapted to the particular constraints and challenges of a non-Euclidean yeah. weird uh -huh. crypto space, you know? Because like in real life, other things that aren't, that are land-like, that aren't literal land are things like orbital real estate, right? Sure. Like, Especially because there's a risk of those things like having a screw fall off and pollute, you know, other people's orbital lanes, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and things like electromagnetic spectrum, like Froggy 99.1 is occupying a scarce location on the radio dial, right? Sure. That could be used by someone else. And are we allocating that as effectively as possible or just to whoever was available at the time, you right. know? And, <laughs> and so there's, there's all these things. And then some people try to take it as far as copyrights and patents, like they're and closing and privatizing the the possibility space of ideas i don't have a big galaxy brain big enough to like come up with a coherent defensible model for that but i think it's a fertile research field for people to like figure out because i think our current copyright and patent system does create a lot of a lot of rent seeking and inefficiency um but i don't have a particularly like great idea for exactly what should be done about it hmm. very cool um excellent well I could probably talk about this for another hour, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta, gotta, gotta cut it off sometime. Yeah, easily. Um, 
All right. Well, let's wrap it up there. Lars, I really appreciate you coming on. This was a great talk. I, I really like the uh, the work that you've done here, and I'm excited to dig into your book. I'll put a link to it down in the description of this show, along with the picture that we talked about in the middle. Yeah. Um, is there anything you want to add before we sign off here, or uh, where can people find you? Yeah, yeah. So I'm at Larcius Prime on Twitter, um, but then you can find my book at landisabigdeal.com. And then I also have a website called gameofrent.com. So all these articles we've talked about, everything I've ever written about Georgism or land value tax, including the virtual real estate stuff, is linked from there. So right. you should be able to find it because um, I've written multiple articles on virtual real estate. And so that's that's through one-stop shop, landisabigdeal.com and gameofrent.com. You'll find everything relevant that I've written on the subject. Excellent. All right. Well, Lars, really appreciate it. Anytime, Luke. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Hope you join me next week for the CoinPress podcast. Bye for now.